This morning, we're winding down the series we've been in for the last few weeks called He Said What? The Crazy Sayings of Jesus. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been taking a look at the Gospels, Matthew, you know, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've been pulling out some of the things that Jesus has said that might cause even the most seasoned of Jesus followers or the, the most long-standing Christian to stop and question Jesus' own sanity. If you've hung around the series this long, kudos to you. Um, and if you're just joining us for the first time, uh, I think you've picked a, a really awesome place to come and, and see a, a church wrestling with the really tough things that Jesus has said. As Dirk said last week, the text we're looking at this morning is probably one of, if not the most difficult teachings that Jesus ever said. It's one of the hardest things to come to terms with uh, if we want to live a Christian life. Uh, but before saying too much more or putting too much anxiety behind this text, let's take a minute just to read what uh, Jesus said. Uh, it comes to us from the Gospel of Luke. We'll start Luke 14, starting at verse 25. We'll read through verse 35. Luke 14, 25 through 35 says this, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears, let them hear. This is God's word for us this morning. I'd like to start with a, a little participatory exercise this morning to get us thinking about um, how we can read and understand or, or come to terms with this really tough saying of Jesus. I'm going to give everyone here a, a sour piece of candy, and I want you all to consider the question before you, before you take the piece of candy. I want you to consider, what does this tough saying of Jesus have in common with a hard piece of sour candy? What does this tough saying of Jesus have in common with a hard piece of sour candy? Uh, go ahead and, and enjoy the, the candy that you've been freely given to have in church this morning. So, so the question we're considering one more time is, what does this tough saying of Jesus have in common with a hard piece of sour candy? Well, first, when you put that piece of candy in your mouth, your first inclination is probably that you want to spit it out. Uh, that sour makes your mouth water in a way that is just extremely unpleasant. Your eyes squint as you, as you fight back the tears that are, that are forming in the corner of them, and your mouth and your whole face puckers up like an old withered pumpkin. 
And if you're anything like me, you do not enjoy that sour experience. You know, your mouth is screaming at you. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Spit it out. Spit it out. You want that experience to be over really quick. In fact, maybe you don't ever want to have that experience again. Well, that sour experience is uh, a lot like this difficult saying of Jesus, is it not? You read over this seemingly impossible and overly harsh scripture, and your first inclination is that you want to spit it out. Uh, Maybe if you're a generous person, you read through it one more time just to make sure that you're not crazy, and your mouth puckers up in disbelief over such a ridiculous thing. And much like wanting to wash the sour coating off that piece of candy before you put it back in your mouth, you sort of want to wash these sour sayings of Jesus right out of the Bible. But before we go all Thomas Jefferson on the Bible and start cutting pieces of the Bible that we don't like out and only forming a Bible with the things that we do like, uh, let's just take a few minutes and talk about the sour parts of this text and what makes them so incredibly unpleasant. As we look at the text, the the first word we might probably want to spit out or do away with is this word hate. It seems extremely unchristian of Jesus to use the word hate, doesn't it? Uh, Like like we would come into a place and we would say, "Well, well, good Christian people would never use the word hate when talking about someone else. Or, or it just seems like a very unchristian sort of thing to do. You know, we might walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, we don't use that sort of language in this house. And not only does it seem like something you want, want to add to the Christian life or the Christian walk, but it, it's so seemingly contradictory to anything Jesus has ever said before. You know, it runs completely against the grain of his law where he says, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And it seems even more of a curious statement when he put up against something like Jesus says um, in Matthew 5 when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, Jesus is a lover. He's not a hater, right? So why is Jesus spewing out all of this hate talk? I mean, is he really telling us that we need to harbor an active abhorrence against all of our family members? You know, maybe there are a few of you here, you read through this and you're like, uh, hate these people. Don't really, you know what? I have had this one done for a long time. You know, I got it. Is it, is it cool if I leave? Like this saying of Jesus makes sense to me, right? But in all seriousness, hating something, uh, hate is a strong, strong emotion, So why would Jesus say this? To really understand how this word is being used, we need to take it back to the original language in the original context. Uh, In Semitic usage or in language in terms that the Bible uses, uh, phrases and and the way it talks about different things, um, the word hate can mean to hate actively or it can mean to hate comparatively. We have something similar in the English language, too. We, we actually use the word hate in a couple of different ways. In English, we can talk about hating someone as to loathe them or wish that they no longer existed. Or we can talk about hate in terms of, um, maybe we could say, well, I, I really hate to bother you. You know, you might um, beg someone's pardon for an interruption. The Bible uses uh, hate in in, in the same way. And the best way that we can see the word hate used um, in the comparative usage or the way we might not always understand it, um, it's uh, found in Genesis 29. Some of you might know 
a part of this story. It's about uh, a man named Jacob who was promised that he could marry the love of his life, Rachel, if he worked for Laban, Rachel's father, for seven years. So uh, Jacob worked really, really hard for those seven years, but he actually got duped into marrying Leah first. Well, after he found this out, he agreed to work another seven years so he could finally marry the true love of his life, Rachel. And when it came to how Jacob loved each one of his wives, the author of Genesis phrases it um, in this way. In uh, Genesis 29, verse 31, it says that when the Lord saw that Leah was, and here's the phrase, not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And then just two verses later, in uh, verse 33, uh, it says, She, being Leah, conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am, and here's the word phrase again, not loved, she gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Now in most of our Bibles, the word translated um, there is not the word hate, but rather is translated as not loved. However, I can assure you, and if, if you don't believe me, feel free to stop by my office sometime and I'll prove it to you. But the, the word that's translated as not love is really the word that means to hate. But it's hate used in a comparative usage. Uh, Jacob did not actively hate or loathe Leah. I, I mean, he, he, she was the father of his kids and, and he loved her to some degree, but he loved her less by comparison to his love for Rachel. Jacob's love for Leah paled by comparison to his love for Rachel. If we can maybe put this in fourth grade science terms, maybe it might help us understand it. We could uh, think about it like this. The stars that you see in a beautiful summer night are actually out and shining all day long. But the sun is so bright that it overpowers them. The sun does not erase the stars from existence but the sun's brilliance simply overpowers them, or the stars, the light of the stars pales by comparison to the sun. And this is the sense of the word hate that Jesus uses in this teaching. And he uses this sense of hate to cover all different aspects of human love, right? He, he covers the love or a sexual love that you might find in a marriage. He covers the familial love of siblings. He covers love of children and uh, children's love for their parents. And at the heart of it, Jesus talks about a love of yourself. Jesus takes all these different kind of loves and he says that he, he wants and he offers a love that is on the same level as all those different types of human love, but it's even more than that. What Jesus says is that I want a love that's as real as a love you have for your wife or your husband or for your mother or your brother. And then a love that is so much more that any other kind of human love will simply pale by comparison. That's how Jesus talks about hate in this text. But that's not the only sour phrase here. I mean, right away, next verse, verse 27, Jesus says, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, that person cannot be my disciple. Well, what does it mean to, to carry one's cross? Let's think about it this way. If you knew that you were going to die in exactly 30 days, what would you spend your time doing? What things in life might you stop doing? What things would become a priority and what things would stop taking up your time? 
Maybe you would uh, do like that Tim McGraw song, Live Like You Were Dying. You know, uh, you might go skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing in 2.7 seconds on a bull named Blue Man, right? And, and, and you know, so on is that how the, the song goes. Um, the point being here, though, if you had a death sentence, the things you pursued in your life would probably be redirected. If you carry your cross, so to speak, you live for things in life that truly truly matter. What Jesus is saying is that a true disciple of his is marked by refashioning one's life according to, to the, the values and the perspectives of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, not the self-serving interests of the world. Okay, so let's say that maybe we've come to a head-level understanding of the sour coating that we we first taste when we look at this teaching. Maybe we've worked off some of the, the sour part of this text, but where do we go from here? You know, what's next? Uh, what's what's going to be the difference here? I guess that I, w- I would redirect us back to the opening question and, and say again, what does this tough saying of Jesus in a hard piece of sour candy still have in common? Well, once the sour coating has come off of the piece of candy, you you still can't bite into it right away. You know, it doesn't break easily. In fact, if you tried to bite down a piece of candy, there's a good chance that you would break your tooth before that piece of candy would actually break. You have to take some time, not only just to work off that sour coating, but you need to take time to to savor that candy in your mouth, to, to really fully enjoy the experience or the sweetness that the candy offers. And that same thing applies to this hard saying of Jesus. You have to have the patience to work through this really tough statement. A statement that initially is like an unsweetened lemon in your mouth. And then you have to do the work of kind of letting it become a part of who you are. Think about it. Ponder it. To let it become a life-changing teaching from Jesus. In order to really do that, though, we need to kind of come to an understanding in our own lives of who we believe Jesus to be in order for this to have any meaningful impact. The opening verse really sets that context. If you look back into the text at verse 25, it starts off by saying large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Now, in Luke's gospel, whenever he uses the phrase large crowds, he's indicating that there's a large group of neutral people following Jesus. They're not committed to Jesus Uh, but they're not uncommitted to him either. You could say that they are both literally and figuratively people who are following Jesus at at a close distance. And why would you not want to tag along in the crowd? Jesus is an extremely fascinating person. He's a great speaker. He puts the elitists of society in their place. He cares for the common man. He he cares for the poor and the widowed. He he heals the sick and the hurting. Who doesn't like someone sticking up for the underdog? That large crowd, too, it's like a lot of people who would show up at a a rally for something. They're not necessarily going to be the ones who are holding signs and yelling into the bullhorn, but they're just sort of there taking up space. They like what they're hearing, But when the police and the tear gas start to show up, they're probably going to be the first ones to leave. And Jesus sort of brings out the tear gas on his own crowd of people. 
Because if Jesus is just someone who carries sage-like wisdom, who fights the status quo, why would you really keep following him for too long? It's most likely because it's easy. It doesn't require anything from you. You can follow along with someone who you like what they're saying, and even if they say something crazy, you might kind of look past it because you haven't really had to give anything. But what if Jesus is more than just uh, someone who carries sage-like wisdom? What if he's really the son of God who he claims to be? Well, if that's really the case, then what Jesus is saying might require something. Lives might start to change. Author and theologian C.S. Lewis, he has this really famous saying um, about Jesus' identity. He says, you can think of Jesus as a, a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And I think in this text, you have two of three options. You can take him to be a lunatic or the Lord. And if Jesus is a lunatic, then walk away. Why follow a crazy person? But if Jesus is really the Lord, who he claims to be, then Jesus is telling the crowd and he's telling each and every one of us that you eventually have to make a decision. You can't walk along in the crowd for your entire lives. Eventually, you either need to walk away or you need to make the decision to become a disciple. What Jesus says is, uh, you can't really come and fit through the door of discipleship if you're bringing a whole lot of luggage with you. Or, or in other words, you can't fit through the door of discipleship if your first response to his call to see him as Lord is but or if. But answering that call does take careful consideration. And this is where Jesus goes in the next part of the text, starting um, in, in verse uh, 27, Jesus talks to the crowd and he, he puts out this call to discipleship, but he says you need to contemplate the decision you're going to make. And he makes these two illustrations. Uh, first, he talks about if you're going to build something, you should really sit down and estimate how much it's going to cost. Because if you just start to build and you only lay the foundation, and that's all the further you're going to go, you're going to look like an idiot. In the same way, he talks about if you're going to go out into battle and and face an opponent that has twice as many people as you do, Well, you better first sit down and think about if your resources can be used well enough to go against the battle. And if they cannot be used effectively, you better make a call for terms of peace right away before people start to die. In the same sort of way, Jesus says you need to count the cost. You need to think about it. And if you're not willing to give up everything, then you can't be my disciple. I mean, wow, this is, uh, this is really, really heavy stuff, which leads you back to the question again, is Jesus a lunatic or is he the Lord? That's what the decision comes down to. So what's really, uh, what's really behind or what's Jesus communicating in all these phrases when he talks about hating things and carrying your cross or giving up everything to follow him? In the midst of the large crowd, we think about the large crowd, both the large crowd then, and even a large crowd of people following Jesus now. Here's what he's getting at. Many people will claim to associate themselves with Jesus, but their fundamental allegiances in life will never change. I think that's really incredibly important, so I'm going to say it one more time. Many people will claim to associate themselves with Jesus, but their fundamental allegiances in life will never change. 
Many people will, will claim that they follow Jesus because he might be trendy, right? Little phrases here or there that you might uh, think about reprinting on a, a reclaimed piece of, of barn wood and then hang it up in your house. Uh, many people will claim to follow Jesus because of social humanitarian issues. You know, he cares for the, the widowed and the orphan and he, he heals the sick, Many people will follow Jesus because it seems like he has the keys to unlocking a new life for yourself. Uh, something like five steps to a, a better you. And a lot of people, I mean all of us, we all want that sort of Rocky Balboa moment where in the midst of the training we run to the top of the stairs with our fists pumping up in the air and, and eye of the tigers playing in the background and we're like, we're getting there, we're transforming ourselves on our own power. But eventually, just following along with Jesus like that, just being a part of the crowd, well, walking along with him, it's, it's going to get boring after a while. It's going to get tiresome. And in the end, it's going to be futile. On the other hand, accepting Jesus as the Lord and living obedience to his call to discipleship, it won't be something that's going to be easy. But it will be life-giving. Now, I understand that some of us might not be quite ready to finalize that decision. We're we're still contemplating the cost, or or maybe we're still kind of contemplating whether Jesus is actually a lord or a lunatic. And that's okay, because we're kind of newer to the journey itself. And I'm sure that there are others of us who are here, who are maybe a little bit further along in that contemplation process, but we're still wondering something like, we're still wondering you know, what makes discipleship so life-giving if the cost is so stinking high? Well, Jesus leads us to the analogy of salt. In verse 34, Jesus begins by saying salt is good. Well, what is salt good for? Now, I don't know about you, but I like it on French fries. It is delicious. Uh, <laughs> But, but really, salt, salt is um, it's a seasoning that gives flavor to something else. Salt doesn't try to flavor itself to like boost its self-esteem. No, no. A, a fundamental characteristic of salt is that it enriches something else. And being a disciple of Jesus should follow that same fundamental characteristic. Discipleship is something that is outwardly focused and it enriches something or someone besides yourself. Because your life has much more purpose than simply living to try to please yourself. In contrast to um, salty salt, um, there's salt that loses its flavor, um, unsalty salt, or or maybe we could call it self-gratifying salt. And this sort of salt is useless. In fact, it's so useless that Jesus said that salt ha- that has lost its saltiness is not even worth throwing on a manure pile. And to really put it all out there, what Jesus is saying is that people who are like unsalty salt or people who simply follow along and never ever make a decision for Jesus are useless in the kingdom of heaven. It, 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 it's a hard statement to hear. It's a bold statement, but that's what it really is. So a question for you this morning is this. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, if you've taken that step of commitment towards him, are you enriching others 
or are you only looking out for yourself? In other words, are you enriching salt or are you unsalty salt? But let's be completely honest about this whole text here. Um, For us as um, broken people to fully obey this saying of Jesus, well, it it would be next to impossible. We cannot fully meet the standards that he lays out, can we? And if Jesus knows that we can't meet these standards, why would he say it? The truth of the matter is that Jesus can say something this bold, this outrageous, this incredible, because Jesus was about to show the world how to do it on a all of creation transforming scale. Jesus doesn't simply give a prescriptive list or, or a list of conditions on everything that we as people need to do in order to gain his favor. What Jesus does is that Jesus becomes the living description of what true obedience to God's purposes looks like. Jesus aligns himself with the priorities of God by literally taking up his own cross and giving up everything, including his own life, so that God's ultimate plan of redemption could take place. And through his death and resurrection, we, as disciples of him, could live lives that are full of grace, lives that have been seasoned with salt, so that the world, though, know that Christ lives in us. In other words, Christ in us, Christ through us to the world. So to bring all of this back full circle to maybe that initial image is um, this saying of Jesus, it's like that sour piece of candy. We have to take some time or we have to have the, the strength to work through the sour coating. And I understand that some of us can get through the sour coating a lot faster than others of us. But then we need the patience to um, simply have this text become a part of who we are, to, to really begin to savor the sweetness that comes from this teaching. Like that hard piece of, of candy to fully savor the sweetness that's embedded in this call to discipleship, we, we need to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and then we need to prayerfully come before the Lord to ask Him to, to transform our priorities and to enable us to live as obedient disciples of Him. Just as that sour piece of hard candy takes a long time to fully finish, this tough saying of Jesus takes time to become a part of who we are, to, to really understand fully in our Christian life. But savoring the sweetness of the cross, the, the life-giving, transformative power that Jesus offers I think that that is worth the cost. And I hope that you think it's worth the cost too. Will you join me in a a word of prayer?